0: Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. Pure Dog Talk is proudly sponsored by Trupanion, medical insurance for pets. It's an uncertain time for many of us, and Trupanion wants to help ease concerns by sharing their knowledge with the animal community. They've formed a COVID Council of Veterinarians dedicated to hosting webinars and helping to answer pet owners' questions. Trupanion is committed to helping pets, whether that's through distributing information or ensuring their team remains operating at full capacity to process your claims. If you're a breeder, they also have a program that allows you to send your litters home with a special offer so you can have peace of mind and you know that your puppies are covered in their new homes. You can learn more by following the link at the website, puredogtalk.com. Don't forget to tell them Pure Dog Talk sent you. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves. And I have a super fun guest today. You will actually, listeners, remember the conversation I had with Denise Flame a while back, and we talked about Ridgebacks, Rhodesian Ridgebacks, and the history, and just some really fascinating detail that Denise brings to it. And she is an author, and a reporter, and just an amazing all-around dog person. Welcome, Denise. Thanks, Laura. It's nice to be here. And Denise has a new book out. And so every now and then here on Pure Dog Talk, I get to combine all of my favorite things, which is books and talking to people and dogs. So how cool is that? (laughs) (laughs) So Denise, give us a little uh, 411. How did doggedly musings on the breeding, judging, and preservation of purebred dogs come about?
1: Well, for many years now, it's got to be more than a decade. I've been a columnist for Dog News. Right, And this is a compilation of all of those columns, which covered every topic imaginable from breeding to judging to line breeding to various really important figures in the breed. It's a real kind of buffet of ideas about dogs because a lot of times we talk about individual dogs and a lot of times we talk about very specific surfacey things, but Right, Not as often as I would like Do we talk about the ideas and the thoughts behind them.
0: Well, and this is why I thought that this book was particularly going to be of interest to my listeners, because that is so much what Pure Dog Talk is. Mm-hmm. And this is your companion book to <laughs> the Pure Dog Talk podcast. Now you have <laughs> wonderful thoughts and insight from really what I think of you as a very smart person and beautiful pictures and all of that. So... Talk a little bit, if you would, about your background, because I don't think we really dug into that, and I think it's fascinating to share with people.
1: So I started life, I'm always in a profession 40 years too late, so <laughs> I became a newspaper woman, you know, yes, not during the of Star era no. when no. people had the bottles of whiskeys in their desk drawers, but when newspapers were like insurance offices. And then, of course, now your newspapers don't really exist anymore. So I spent 20 years as a columnist and editor at Newsday, which is the major daily newspaper on Long island in the metro New York area. Then about 20 years ago, I started getting involved in Ridgebacks. I started to breed, I started to show them. And then I published a series of dog magazines. I published a Ridgeback magazine. I also revived Sighthound Review, which the Sighthound people will remember was founded by Bo Bankston. Bo didn't think anyone would remember Sighthound Review. Bo was wrong. That's and nice. and then I founded <laughs> yes. a magazine called Modern Molosser, which actually still exists online. Molosser is a word that's pretty well-known overseas, not so much here. People think it's like a dinosaur Raptor, but it's actually a term that people use to describe mastiffs and dogs with similar phenotypes, thick skin, mm-hmm. heavy bone. And so I... Stopped publishing those magazines several years ago and was suddenly occupationally eligible to judge. So I've started judging. I judge the entire hound group and a big chunk of working, including those Molosser breeds. And I have a publishing house called Revadana Publishing, which publishes dog books that are really non-generic, real specific, right. high-quality right. books.
0: And that's one that's of the me. things that is great, I think, about this particular publication. I mean, I think you outdid yourself the quality of just people who are book lovers, it is a beautiful book. It's beautifully photographed, it's beautifully bound, it's beautifully types. I mean, it has nice paper, right? Like some of us are just yes, weird about nice. that kind of stuff. <laughs> the presentation I agree is lovely. But the thing I really am most
1: proud about this book is that I think the ideas in there are exciting if you're somebody who really is into dogs in, like I said, more than a surfacey way. Pat Trotter said that she read it. She's up all night. So I like to right. think of it as the book that keeps Pat Trotter
0: awake at night. <laughs> but see, I'm sorry. I could put that on my <laughs> gravestone someday, right?
1: <laughs> and you know, I think also that we get so sometimes in dogs, we get so stuck in taboos. And I really think it's time for us to sort of step back and realize that none of the breeds that we're involved in emerged fully formed from any right. place. Right. And so... You know, on the one hand, we can't be so caught up in rules that we lose the forest for the trees. And on the other hand, I feel really strongly that the one thing that's missing in dogs, in particular in judging, is what Mm -hmm. I'm doing more of lately, Mm -hmm. is respect. Oh, boy. You have to have respect when you walk into the ring, not just for the people and the dogs, but for the breed. And for me, that means not just reading the standard, which is really important, but then finding the correct way to interpret the standard it's sort of like and there's an essay in here about this it's sort of like your breed the breed you start with is like your house you know your house really well you know if you get up in the middle of the night to pee you know where that creek is on the step. you know where you're going to trip you don't even have to remember where the light fixture is your hand just goes for it that's your breed when you go into somebody else's breed it's like staying at a friend's house that you've never been to before and you don't know where anything is and you're fumbling and you got to keep visiting. And the more you visit, it's never quite your home, but you get a little more comfortable. You know where the carrig is, you know where the mugs are. And most important, if you are staying over that friend's house, you leave it better than you found it. Yes. You have respect for it because you know it's not yours
0: and you don't
1: just come in and trash it. And I think a lot of people maybe don't quite have the
0: same philosophy. That's just beautiful. And it's really lyrical. And it really speaks to so much about how I understand our shared passion for dogs, for judging, for thinking about how we approach it. And I think it's important for listeners to hear because respect is a lot of levels. Like we (laughs) respect for the dogs, respect for the exhibitors, respect for the judges, respect for the time and the effort that they've put in to think about this the way you do. To understand and appreciate breeds the way you do and the way you talk about it, there. I think it's really important for people to hear that.
1: Right. My breed is not a Motel Six. <laughs> you know, it's not. And the other thing for me, judging has been really interesting because nobody ever talks about how you become a judge. People talk about my continuing education units and I need 10 <laughs> CEUs to get this breed. I mean, well, they talk about that. But, I mean, how do you really learn a breed? And I think the way you learn a breed, it's a three-part process, head, heart, gut. So first you know you see the breed, you know it exists, you start to study it, you read the standard, you go to seminars. So it's in your head. You have all those pieces. But there has to be something that you connect with, with that breed. Maybe you met one and just sort of fell in love. Maybe it's closely related to the breed that you started with or a breed that you really like, and so the differences between those two breeds and the similarities, but there's got to be something that moves that breed from your head into your heart so that you genuinely like it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like people, there are some people that you meet and you immediately have a connection with. There are other people that you have to work a little bit harder. You got to (laughs) find something about them
0: that you like. (laughs) Some Some of us don't try that hard, I'm afraid. (laughs)
1: Well, but I mean, I want to try. Right. Because without that interest, you can't get any depth in a breed.
0: That's right. Because
1: you don't want to. It doesn't right. interest you. Right. And then when you have the breed in your head and then you've got that motivation to learn more about it slowly as you get more exposure and you get more depth and you talk to breeders and you talk about the stuff that the standard doesn't say, but that you as a judge need to know, mm-hmm. it goes into your gut. And that's, I think, a big part of judging that people don't talk about is instinct Mm -hmm. and your gut feeling. And it's not just like some muse descends on you from out of nowhere. That gut feeling comes from the drip, drip, drip of knowledge that you've gotten and exposure. And then suddenly you don't have to think. It's like when you learn how to drive six steps first, you're always thinking, oh, clutch, brake, clutch, brake, clutch, gas. But when you know how to, you just get in, you drive. And that process of getting, and I don't mean to make it sound like judging a breed is like as easy as driving a car. But there's a degree of ease that you get and a degree of sort of knowing what's right, even though maybe you've never been
0: presented with it, that just Mm -hmm. comes being familiar with a breed. Speak to the concept. And I've actually done a panel discussion on this that was really, really fascinating. And I'd love to hear your spin on it. The concept that I for a dog, what you're talking about your gut, that is that combined 40 years or whatever it is of seeing great dogs, of talking to people, of learning, of assimilating that knowledge. And that I think turns into an eye for a dog. Your thoughts?
1: It's exactly the same process. There's a really great story about the Getty Museum in California.
0: Mm -hmm. When the
1: Getty Museum in California first opened, they really wanted like a blockbuster artwork to really make them stand out. And compete with the big guys like the Met in New York and stuff. Mm. So they found an ancient Greek statue of a nude man. I mean, it was so amazingly intact for something Mm. thousands of years old that was almost too good to be true. So they got really worried and they measured, they got the calipers out, they extracted the marble, they studied it. All of the experts proclaimed it to be legit. It was totally authentic. And then they invited the antiquities dealers in And one by one, these dealers who had spent a lifetime of touching ancient Roman and Greek artifacts walked in and they all had similar reactions. One said she felt like vomiting. Another one said you just got cold all over. And they just said, it's wrong. Why is it wrong? I don't know why it's wrong. It's just wrong. It's a copy, a really good copy, but it's not. And it's that same thing. They had an eye for this because they had spent their entire careers. And sometimes just when you have proximity to something, when you see it, your brain is absorbing all of the measurements that those scientists so accurately plotted when they determined this thing was authentic, these guys could pick up just by absorbing it, just by Mm -hmm. osmosis. And they were more accurate into this day. I've yet to be in the Getty to see it. But my understanding is there's a sign in front of the statue saying possible or probable fraud because its authenticity really
0: wound up, it was just kind of too good.
1: So I think that's an eye. That's how you develop an eye. I mean, you can't, there's Mm. no
0: shortcut. It's just time. And I think opportunity. It's another thing that I can't even remember which one of my guests I was talking to, but it was such a really valid point. Judges who are judging dogs who have not seen the great dogs of a particular breed in the flesh or studied very carefully the photos of them and the video they don't have a benchmark or their benchmark is perhaps lower than it should be the same as your art dealers who if all they'd ever seen was more recent work they may not have been able to identify
1: a or group. let's use the dog analogy one of the hardest things and it is very logical now but at the time when i was first starting to learn some breeds i didn't understand this you can't learn from a mediocre entry of dogs. Yes, You can't because you haven't set your eye on what the ideal is. You know, when I first started collecting antique furniture, I went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and I went to their Americana galleries and I planted myself in front of (laughs) the 18th century Philadelphia high boy and Mm. I stared at it and I took pictures of it because that was the ultimate in balance and proportion and form and function. And you know, by the way, dogs and furniture, There's a lot, and there's a whole essay in the book about this, you know, dogs and furniture have ears, they have skirts, they have knees, a lot of similarities. And in both cases, form follows function. Because unless I could get that high style, top quality piece of furniture in my head, I could never hope to figure out what was good and what wasn't. (laughs) I grew up in Queens and there was a furniture refinisher who used to have a shop next to the sanitation depot. And when the sanitation men would come in with well, a piece of junk, mm. he'd give them 200 bucks and he'd say, do me a favor. The next time you find this, bring it to me. And I said to him, why do you do that? He said, because, well, the next time they find a piece of junk like that, they're gonna go to the other antique dealer and they're gonna expect 200 bucks and the guy's gonna tell them that's not worth five bucks and turn them away. So they're never gonna know what's really good or right. what's a piece of junk. They'll just right. keep coming to me, which is really actually quite smart. You really have to know what's good <laughs> and you can't be somebody like that antique dealer who isn't going to let you see what good
0: really is right hang tight guys got a little bit of information for you we'll be right back to the podcast in a minute so hey crew new year new decade let's have some new pure dog talk promos while we're at it shall we all right our patrons group continues to grow and thrive. It's like the NPR of Dogdom. It's so cool. And Pure Dog Talk offers you, my loyal listeners, an opportunity to get in on the fun. <laughs> Pure Dog Talk patrons are invited to join a closed Facebook chat group just for you. And I promise you, no drama mamas, what, what, what? no keyboard warriors, just fabulous, supportive Pure Dog Talk fans. That's it. Each month, I pick a photo submitted by our patrons group to be the cover image on the Facebook page. You guys have seen it. And anybody with a quick question gets immediate feedback from moi personally, as well as input from the array of patron group members. Pretty fun. The patrons group also gets first dibs on podcast topic suggestions. So if you have something you want to hear about, that's a good way to do it. And to celebrate the new year, I'm adding a whole new technological challenge to my life. Oh my God. I will be hosting Facebook Live discussions for patrons only on the final Monday of each month from 6 to 7 p.m. Pacific time zone. Yeah, baby, yeah! Y'all join us from wherever you are, but that's when they'll be. Just a few of our planned topics of conversation include Advertising on a shoestring budget (laughs) Yeah, trust me, we can talk about that Campaigning a special just for handlers. Problem solving the stack Tricks of the trade for grooming Like what products do I like or anybody else like Open mic Q&As, all that kind of stuff What you guys need to know is that the generosity of Pure Dog Talk's patrons is literally what keeps the MP3s running here. The money is set aside exclusively for overhead and operational expenses. That's it. Now, I'm incredibly grateful to our corporate sponsors. You have no idea. They have the dedication to purebred dogs and the resources to ensure that Pure Dog Talk remains a powerful voice for purebred dogs. That you guys, y'all believed in this mission. You supported it from the beginning. You are the heart and soul of my crusade to provide all purebred dog lovers a constantly growing, challenging treasure trove of knowledge in a 21st century format. Like a real wish. So just click the Be My Patron on Podbean button on the website. It's quick, it's easy, it's secure. And I hope to see all of you on the next. Facebook live chat. Let's segue that into now we're talking about dog breeding. If dog breeders won't sell their very best dogs, because as we all know, selling dogs is scary sometimes. And if you're not willing to take that risk, if you're not willing to trust people, how are those people to take the next step forward?
1: How about if you're not willing to breed? How about this whole concept of us beating ourselves up and eating our young by criticizing fellow breeders who breed?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: We really do a great job of shooting ourselves in the foot. And the more we divide ourselves and look at our differences, the more perilous our world becomes. I mean, I don't know if you've done a show on this or are looking at it, but what's going on in Holland right now is
0: really frightening. I did one last year when it first came up, and I want to do another one now that it has actually passed. Speak to that a little bit. Give listeners, I'll link it in when I put up the blog post, but tell listeners who are listening right now what we're talking about.
1: So in Holland, some legislation recently passed involving brachycephalic breeds, short-faced breeds like Bulldogs and Brussels Griffon and Pekingese. And the government in Holland has mandated that if you own a dog of these breeds in which the muzzle is less than a third of the overall head. You cannot breed that dog unless you breed it to another dog, could be of another breed, that has a muzzle that is longer than one third to two thirds muzzle to skull.
0: And so so, again, that concept of people who know nothing about (laughs) breeding dogs are telling people how to breed dogs. Right, and if you don't do
1: that, you can't register your dog. But if you do do that, you have to breed to another breed because mm-hmm. many of these breeds require the muzzle to be less than a third. You can't register them either because you've done a crossbreeding. Right. So it's really pretty disturbing, and stuff like this happens all over the world. You know, Rhodesian Ridgebacks are my breed. We recently had a movement within some committees in the FCI to uh, create a variety of ridgeless Rhodesian Ridgebacks. Why? Uh, okay. Uh, because the feeling with FCI is that if there's any particular trait that is required in order to produce a breed, and in order to have ridge, ridgebacks, you have to have ridgeless ones, that should be in the show ring. Just like in order to have a Chinese crested that's hairless, you need powder puffs. And just like in order to have harlequins, you need merles. That's their guiding philosophy.
0: Hmm. And
1: obviously there's a bit of a disconnect in having a dog that lacks the hallmark of the breed, you know, recognizes a variety. And, and we successfully fought it back because Ridgeback breeders internationally are very connected and we right. got a petition going and for now beat it back. But, you know, you have to be vigilant. You just can't sit back and say, oh, well, it'll never happen to me because
0: yeah. next thing you know, it's you. Yeah. And, and that we don't was, do a good I, job of explaining ourselves. Right. No, I agree. And I had a listener actually contact me, pug person, contact me once this all Because it started with the bug club. And she's, you know, what do we do? How do we stop this here? You know, all that. I said, Well, I strongly recommend that the brachycephalic breeds perhaps join forces and create a lobbying group preemptively with the expectation and understanding that it will come here. You read on social media where they're talking about this and dog breeders, dog show breeders, preservation breeders who should know better are in there saying, oh, yeah, brachycephalic, this, that, and the other, like they have a clue?
1: You know, I find that dog people, and there are exceptions, of course, we kind of get into our own breeds, and we stay there, and nothing else exists, and that's understandable, right, because it's important, but I always thought it was very strange, like I come out of Rhodesian Ridgeback. Rhodesian Ridgeback people, generally speaking, have no knowledge, comprehension, or connection with bulls at all. Which is the South African Mastiff, to which we are, you know, genetically connected with. I mean, okay, 100 years ago, but nonetheless, right. you would think that we would have some intellectual curiosity about that, or about even some of the American Coonhounds, which were, you know, bred for large game like the Redbone. You would think mm-hmm. that, even though there's no genetic connection, and I'm not saying a Ridgeback is a borable or a Redbone, but what I'm saying, you would think that, like for comparison's sake, just to be Curiosity. Interested. Or even like the Dogo Argentino. You know what? The Dogo Argentino is a breed that was put together to hunt big game. And there are very similar functions. And you can learn a little bit if you learned about those breeds, even if it pointed out the differences between your breed and these sort of kissing cousin breeds. And I wish people would do more of that. And I wish people would look at the similarities that they have with other breeds as opposed to the differences.
0: Well, and the differences that make them unique. We do Judges Ed compare and contrast. Dre Brewster actually does a really good one with wire hairs, short shorthairs, and Griffons, mm. and I like to do comparisons of wire hairs, Griffons, and Spinoni, simply because three European continental versatile hunting dogs all developed to hunt fur and feather in slightly different terrain, all with wire coats of varying descriptions, and how the standards differ, and how different the dogs are despite the fact that they were bred to do essentially the same thing. And details are really important. Super important.
1: (laughs) Two breeds that I'm interested in, the Sloogie and the Oswalk. It's all about the details. If you don't watch your details in an Oswalk, it becomes a Sloogie. It starts to become square as opposed to vertical. It starts to get more bone because the Oswak lives in a much more extreme climate and its body adapted and it it went vertical to kind of get it away Mm -hmm. from the heat of the sands and so forth and the bone got lighter. And when you don't have nature creating that phenotype, the genome kind of wants to go back to midpoint, which is what dogs do. And so there are some breeds in which type is really delicate. And Mm -hmm. if I'm looking at a Scottish deerhound and I can't tell if it's an Irish wolfhound or a Scottish deerhound, you know, two breeds that kind of, you know, when they start going wrong can resemble each other. I mean, that's when those details are incredibly important. And again, I don't know how much connection there is between deerhounds and wolfhound people. I suspect not much, but those that do take the time to sort of check out their neighbors, I think are better off and I think have a deeper understanding of their own breed. Absolutely. I know it's a cliche, but it's
0: true. No, but it really is true. And you're talking deerhounds and wolfhounds are a perfect example and really important one because they have historic connection. The wirehair and the griffon, the same thing. So the griffon was one of the breeds used to develop the wirehair. And so back in the late 1800s, there was a similar breed to the wirehair pointing griffon. And one of the key differences in type, and it's, again, it's minor, is eye shape round versus oval, mm-hmm. and when you see a German wire hair pointer with round yellow eyes and a square head and a softer coat, you are seeing essentially a throwback, the drag of the breed that is right. the difference between a Griffon and a wire hair pointer.
1: It's like a cocktail, isn't it? Right. It is. I mean, if I sat down and had a Cosmopolitan, I just am drinking this Cosmopolitan to know I really, really like it. But if I really want to sit down and figure out what group of ingredients, when put together in the right Mm proportion, transcend their individual components and make this greater thing, it's the same thing with dog breeds. Yes. And that's the fun to me of judging. And that's why some things are a bigger deal than others. Because if I maybe put a little more lime juice in that cosmopolitan, not a big deal. But if I put gin in (laughs) instead, you know, that's going (laughs) to create a problem. Okay. Okay, that just um, and, ugh. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. Okay. sorry. But I think that that to me is the fun part of judging, yes. your, you know, how close can I get this cocktail and how yes. much of this and how much of that and
0: what can I forgive and what's the formula? It's and, the same with that, cooking, right? So when you cook and yeah. some people follow the recipe to the nth degree and it still doesn't taste right. And some people just kind of throw stuff in the pan and you're like amazed. There's a little bit of that. Cooking and dog breeding, in my mind. It's my comparison because Absolutely. I love to cook and, you know, the dog breeding and dog handling. I refer to the jazz musician versus the classical pianist. The dog handler, who's the classical pianist who plays and is very, very precise and doesn't have a lot of give and does a beautiful job within this constraint. And the jazz musician is over here, like la 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 la, la the saxophone right? And it can sometimes make you a little bit dizzy. (laughs) So there's a lot of important things that you can pull from each of those, right? And there's also another great analogy, which
1: comes from my friend Rafa in Spain, Rafael Malo Alcudo, who's a very well-known all-breed judge in Europe. And he Mm. says that breed standards are like songs. They Mm. have words and they have music. Mm. If you just listen to the words, you can read them off. Just like you can read a standard, fine. But you have to find the music in the standard. You have to find that melody that when you hear it, you know it's the song, even if you can't hear the words. And that's what type is. We talk about type all the time. What's type? Type is that. I mean, type is, is all those things put together that make this transcendental thing that immediately when you look at it, you can identify it as a member of that breed. And there are just some things that you need in order to keep, when you hear that song, to be able to keep identifying as what it is. And that's, to me, what I find so interesting about purebred dogs is just learning. Because, you know, dogs are also not just dogs, right? Dogs are really kind of the combination of nature and human culture. I mean, Mm -hmm. they're like the collision of those two things.
0: And they touch our souls.
1: They touch our souls. And they also bring us back to a place and to a people and to a little pinprick in time that doesn't exist anymore, You know, to go back to the Oswalk, the Oswalk was created by some of the most fascinating people, the Tuaregs of the Sahara of West Africa, the blue men of the desert who rode their camels and were raiders of desert parties. And you can't even go back to the homeland of the Oswalk. I mean, it's overrun by Al-Qaeda and the dogs that if you go back to the place where they were procured, you can't get there. And I think that in that way, I mean, really, truly it's preservation breeding yes. because you're not just preserving a breed of dog, but you're preserving a just kind of a fleeting memory of a way of life and of a people and of a time mm. and of a place that doesn't exist anymore. And I don't know, maybe when I get older, I get more nostalgic, but those things to me are really valuable, which is why when I go to a breed seminar and someone says, ah, all right, let's go through the history, which I really hate. And I feel like saying that's the most important part. Yes. Yeah, why are you? It is. Why is it such a burden to teach me about the history of your breed? Oh,
0: okay. Yes. The history is the most important. It's what made them what they are.
1: <laughs> you would think that this is, but I'm going to tell you, I can't tell you how many people, and I recently had to struggle with this because I am a real purist. I don't like people mucking about with standards. Yeah. I think that instead of the standard changing to adapt to me, I should learn how to yes. interpret that standard. Yes. If you use a word in your standard, I come out of Ridgebacks. Our dogs are supposed to be Wheaten in color. The term Wheaton is very different. I mean, it was just in a boohoon seminar today. They use right. Wheaton
0: right. It a little
1: bit differently. The Irish Wolfhounds use Wheaton. Obviously, yeah. the soft-coded Wheaton. And, it, you know, it's, it's all different. Yeah, I shouldn't have to define, shouldn't have to open my standard, which has been very good to us for the last 80 years and muck around with it and define things because you won't take the time to seek out knowledgeable people of my breed and learn, and learn. how to interpret it. However, <laughs> I have been told repeatedly, and I'm starting to believe what people are telling me, that mine is a very old-fashioned
0: and impractical view. You know, I've been told that too. I've been told that I'm a Pollyanna. That's my favorite. <laughs> no, it doesn't mean you're a Pollyanna. I mean, mean again, no, look me. at
1: where we started, which it's about yeah. respect. You exactly. so want to judge my breed, have enough respect for it to learn how to interpret my standards. Yeah. And if it's not handed to you on a paper plate, go find someone who can teach it to you. Find me. I'll talk to you about respect all day. Yeah. So I am unsympathetic, but I think I've ultimately come to the decision that I would rather have precision at the cost of authenticity. I would rather, I think, maybe I'm just defeated but I would rather change the standard to make things clear rather than let other people who don't care enough bungle it.
0: Yeah. I think that we have done a very good job of demonstrating for our listeners the types of musings (laughs) that might be found in doggedly (laughs) musings on the breeding, judging, and preservation of purebred dogs. Thank you, Denise. I so appreciate you, my dear. And I am grateful for your time. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Laura. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our dog show superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the supers desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love pure dog talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on pure dog talk.